From WGCU News, this is Gulf Coast Life. I'm Mike Canary. Anti-Semitism has been on the rise in the United States for the past two decades, and 2021 was the highest year on record for documented reports of violence, harassment, and vandalism directed toward Jews. That's according to data from the nonprofit Anti-Defamation League, which has been actively monitoring and documenting incidents of anti-Semitism and publishing this information since 1979. And there has been a spike of incidents of anti-Semitism in recent weeks since the Hamas attack on Israel. Israel earlier this month. In a statement released on October 17th, the Anti-Defamation League said in the United Kingdom there had been a 500% increase in documented anti-Semitic incidents. In the United States there had been 107 anti-Semitic incidents since October 7th. In France, the Minister of Interior reported 189 anti-Semitic incidents, which led to 65 arrests. In Berlin, Stars of David were painted on the homes of Jews. The report cited numerous other examples. On today's show, we're going back into history to try to add some context to the world we find ourselves in today to an incident that unfolded in France in the late 1800s and early 1900s, what's known as the Dreyfus Affair. It centered on a Jewish officer in the French army named Alfred Dreyfus who was accused, on what turned out to be less than flimsy evidence, of committing treason by passing along military information to Germany. His arrest and then conviction all unfolding during the dawn of mass media through newspapers, became a force that both stoked anti-Semitism in France and around Europe and helped to shape Jewish identity and in some ways even began laying the groundwork for the eventual creation of the State of Israel half a century later in 1948. To get this context, I spoke last week to Dr. Maurice Samuels from Yale University, who was brought to campus by the Florida Gulf Coast University Office of the Provost to give a talk titled the Dreyfus Affair, Anti-Semitism, and Jewish Identity at the Turn of the 20th Century. Let's hear that conversation now. Dr. Maury Samuels is director of the Yale Program for the Study of Anti-Semitism and Betty Jane Anlian, professor of French at Yale University. Dr. Samuels, thanks for being here. Thank you. So for starters, just tell us a bit about yourself and your areas of academic interest, uh, Judaic studies and French. I guess the question is, which came first? <laughs> French came first. Um, I'm a hist cultural historian of 19th century France and interested in the 19th century French novel. And those novels are full of Jewish characters and full of anti-Semitism. And that got me interested in um, the study of anti-Semitism. So I would say the French part definitely came first. Uh, you spend a fair amount of time in France still? I do. I try to go there every summer for at least a couple weeks. Um, you became the first director of the Yale Program for the Study of Anti-Semitism, 2011. Mm -hmm. um, how did that come about? And then tell us a bit about it. Well, um, it uh, came about in 2011. There had been actually an earlier uh, incarnation, a different program. Um, that ended in 2011, and a group of faculty members uh, came together and decided to form a new one. Um, this was at a time when anti-Semitism had, you know, there 
there had been really a decline of anti-Semitism at the end of the 20th century. And then starting in after the new millennium, we've seen an uptick. Um, and uh, at that point, it was you know mainly in Europe. And France is really the epicenter of that, what people call the new anti-Semitism. And so, you know, that was something that I had been interested in. I was also interested in older forms of anti-Semitism because of what I study. So a group of us came together and decided to um, start this new program. And our program, unlike some other ones, is interested in the whole history of anti-Semitism. Um, so we look at contemporary issues and contemporary threats to Jews, but we try to put that in a longer historical context. Understood. Uh, so you're on campus today to give a presentation titled The Dreyfus Affair, Anti-Semitism and Jewish Identity at the Turn of the 20th Century. How much of your talk today will be about the historic event that is the Dreyfus Affair and how much of it will be about um, sort of the groundwork that it may have laid or the, you know, extrapolating how the 20th century played out in light of it? Yeah, so... Um Part of what I try to do is um, just tell the story of the the affair, which is a fascinating story and one that I find that most people don't really know that much about. I've been, as a kind of informal um, experiment, I ask people I meet, what do you know about the Dreyfus affair? And it's, you know, maybe that, okay, wasn't it this Jewish guy who was falsely accused? Maybe that that's just about, you know, maybe some people might know about uh, Emile Zola and his famous article, J'accuse. Um, but people don't know that much more than that. So I, I'm trying to tell the story, and it's a fascinating, almost like cloak and dagger kind of story. Um, so that's a lot of it. I'm also going to be looking at how – which. Um, so I have a book coming out about the Dreyfus Affair, and part of my – I would say original contribution is to look at how Jewish communities around the world reacted to the affair at the time. So that's going to be a part of what I talk about. And then at the end of the talk, I'm going to be looking at uh, what lessons we can draw from the affair uh, to understand our current situation. I fell into the camp of knowing very little about it. Um, I've spent a lot of time reading up on it in the past few days. Um, we don't have that much time, so we can't go into all the detail. There's several hour-long talks that go into <laughs> details because that's there's plenty of detail. Um, What's the short version of the story? He was a, an officer in the French army and was accused of treason in 1894. Pick it up from there. Okay, right. So he was um, an officer in the French army, as you said, of Jewish background. And um, in 1894, the French discovered that there was a traitor in their midst. So they intercepted a communication of some French officer who had offered to sell military secrets to Germany. Kind of, you know, a great little um, anecdote is they, they discovered it because they had a spy. The cleaning lady in the German embassy was a spy. And she literally picked up the trash that had a torn up document. So they reassembled the document. They realized there was a traitor. And for, um, you know, certain reasons, suspicion fell on Dreyfus. And one of the things I, I look at in my book and in the talk today is, you know, was it anti-Semitism? And the answer is probably yes. So he was 
definitely not the only Jewish officer. And in fact, you know, people might be surprised to know that at the end of the 19th century, there were, you know, hundreds, something like 300 Jewish officers in the French army. Um, this is even though France had a tiny Jewish population of only about 80,000 people, so like 0.2% of the French population. Um, and But suspicion fell on Dreyfus. He was, in fact, the only Jew on the army's general staff. He was an intern on the general staff at that point. And there was a superficial similarity of his handwriting to this document. Um, so, you know, they accused him with very flimsy evidence. There was really only circumstantial evidence, which was not even shown to his lawyers, um, which was, um, you know, in violation of the law. So they had a kind of hasty court-martial and found him guilty, shipped him off to a brutal prison colony. Um, Devil's off, Island. Devil's Island um, off the coast of South America. They, they it had been like a leper colony. They got rid of the lepers and put he was the only prisoner and kept there in unbelievably brutal conditions for five years. So he was chained to his bed, bugs crawling over him. Almost no food that he had to kind of gather wood and cook himself. He was observed day and night. It's an amazing story of survival, just being able to survive. While his family back in France, mainly his you know incredibly devoted wife, Lucy, and his brother, Mathieu, um, tried to launch a campaign to get people, um, you know, to overturn this verdict and to get people to understand that he was innocent. And uh, it was a real uphill battle. You know, people didn't want to hear about it. This was a time of intense patriotism in France because France had just lost this horrible war to the Franco-Prussian War to, to Germany. Um, and so there was, you know, this spirit of, you know, we need revenge and we have to do everything we can to support the army no matter what. So nobody wanted to hear that the army had made a horrible mistake. Um, so they were, and you know, fighting to to get him freed. Dreyfus on Devil's Island had no idea. Yeah, that, he was completely. There was no no way to get information to him at that time. No, his letters were censored. They arrived months, you know, late. He had, you know, his wife was very careful of, you know, what what she wrote to him. You know, they were, you know, it's a really complicated story, but they. Basically, little things leaked out that indicated not only that he was innocent, but that there had been a cover-up. Um, and as these things started to leak out, some uh, you know other French officers in the counter-espionage unit decided to forge more incriminating evidence against him. They doubled down on their... Uh Avoidance of the truth. Exactly. Huge mistake. And they they could have just admitted their mistake from the beginning. This would not have turned into an affair, but exactly. And they, they doubled down instead. Um, eventually, it became pretty clear that the real um, guilty party was this sort of dissolute nobleman named uh, Esterhazy. When they published um, eventually the document, the incriminating document, his stockbroker recognized his handwriting, Esterhazy's stockbroker, um, and brought that to the army and they covered it up. 
Um, and so then they started to protect the real spy, which is what's just an incredible part of the story because they didn't want to admit that they had made a mistake. Eventually, the Dreyfus family found out that Esterhazy was the real guilty party. They were able to petition for revision of the verdict. They then brought um, – after five years, they brought Dreyfus back to France to stand trial again. Um, this trial lasted for months. And at this point, I should say, France was completely divided. Um, and this was present yeah. in in the collective conscious at this point, too. Oh, my God. Yeah. So um, at this point, people were obsessed by the case in, in France and really around the world. One of the big um, you know moments that kind of blew the lid off the case was, uh, as I mentioned before, the publication by Emile Zola, who was one of the most famous novelists in France and who became intensely interested in the case when he realized that Dreyfus was innocent, he wrote this um, bombshell article called J'accuse, I accuse, where he basically denounced the top brass of the army for their conspiracy and cover-up, published this on the front page of a newspaper. It sold 300,000 copies. So at this point, France was up in arms, was divided between Dreyfusards, so people who were supporters of Dreyfus and anti-Dreyfusards, people who some of whom maybe even thought, okay, he's innocent, but we have to support the army anyway, um, which is a really interesting thing. Anti-Semitic riots uh, broke out all across France um, in something like 69 different cities, even some that had no Jews, and in colonial Algeria, where the worst violence happened against Jews. And um, France was really at the point of civil war when uh, they brought Dreyfus back for the second trial. And they convicted him again, right? Yes. So, <laughs> right. Even though it's another this twist point, in the already twisted tale. Yeah. And so he was incredibly frail at this point. And he, um, even though the there was, you know, became clear that there was very little evidence against him, although there was a secret dossier of these forged documents um, and, you know, that they, you know, kept alluding to. And that was one of the reasons that they found him guilty. Again, also, he was not, he was a very low-key guy and he refused to kind of play the part of the um, misunderstood victim. So he was, he was a real officer. He was an army officer, very kind of sober, by the book guy, and he was not given to histrionics. And so a lot of people felt like he wasn't so sympathetic in his in his testimony or not very likable um, in this sense. So he was found guilty again, but this time uh, with extenuating circumstances, um, which I think was the army's, uh, the court martial's way of acknowledging that he was actually innocent um, at that point. And then they ended up... Um, um Pardoning everyone involved on both sides, sort of except him, because he wouldn't accept the pardon. Well, or yeah, how? he did get a pardon. So this was a controversial thing because so he's found guilty again. People realized that he couldn't go back to Devil's Island. He was going to die. I mean, he was near death anyway. And the other thing in the background was that France was going to be hosting the 1900 World's Fair. Um, and at this point, what's very interesting is that countries around the world were 
almost uniformly sympathetic to Dreyfus. So Germany, you know, knew that he was innocent, was very sympathetic. The United States, almost totally sympathetic to Dreyfus. Even czarist Russia was sympathetic to Dreyfus. So there was a world outcry um, after he was found guilty again, and France was worried there was going to be a boycott of the, the World's Fair. So they floated the idea of a pardon, and Dreyfus's supporters didn't want him to take the pardon. And he eventually did accept the pardon on the condition that he could still fight to clear his name later. And so they, um, they, he got the pardon, was able to go back to his family, and then they kept up the fight. They needed to have more proof that uh, you know, injustice had been committed in his trial that eventually came to light, and he was eventually totally exonerated in 1906. And as you said, they in the meantime passed a general amnesty against everyone involved in the affair. And that also outraged a lot of his supporters who felt like that the military brass should not have gotten off for what they did. Did this affair um, strengthen anti-Semitic sentiment across France? Yeah. So did it also maybe do the opposite in some ways? Yes. Yeah. The, good point. So, um, you know, it's important to recognize that France um, kind of poses a conundrum for scholars of anti-Semitism because on the one hand, France was the first European country to give Jews full civil rights. And it did that very early during the French Revolution in 1790 and 91. Throughout most of the 19th century, France was the best country for Jews. Um, it was the country where Jews had full and total equality. And that's one of the reasons why someone like Dreyfus could, you know, attend the best schools in France um, and rise up in the army. It's important to keep in mind that this was a time when this was certainly not, avail you know, a kind of equality that was not really available to Jews anywhere else in the world, including the United States, um, where Jews were basically excluded from, you know, attending most universities. Um, there were very few Jews um, in the army and in um, government before well into the 20th century. So France was way ahead of the curve. But partly as a result of that, France was also the country where a new and really virulent form of anti-Semitism began to take shape in the 1880s. So this guy named Édouard Drummond published a book called La France Juive, Jewish France, which was a denunciation of the presence of Jews in French national life. That was 1886. He started to publish a daily anti-Semitic newspaper. And remember, Jews were only 0.2% of the French population. So in the early 1890s, and that's one of the things that kind of laid the groundwork for the affair. He was obsessed with the presence of Jews in the military. He said that all Jews were potential traitors. So that was one of the reasons why suspicion fell on Dreyfus in the first place. And then, you know, during the affair, it really unleashed a torrent of anti-Semitism. So when they eventually exposed the, the fact that the supposedly incriminating evidence against Dreyfus was mostly forgeries um, by this guy named Henri, who was in the counter-espionage unit. He committed suicide, and Drummond took up a collection for his, his widow and orphan. 
Uh, and people across France, tens of thousands of people made, you know, donations to this campaign with viciously anti-Semitic messages attached. Um, it really showed the depth of hatred towards this tiny minority in France. But then, as you said, it also showed, you know, half the country supported Dreyfus. Uh, and that's an important thing to keep in mind that it really, you know, it it led to the creation of these um, uh, leagues for human rights in France. And people began to realize that anti-Semitism was a threat to the republic and to democracy, and they needed to fight it. Even if they didn't care about Jews one way or the other, they realized that this kind of prejudice was dangerous to the country. And so it led to um, you know, a, uh, a real turning point in France, um, especially on the left, which had, you know, the Socialist Party had been kind of suspicious of Jewish capitalism, but they, um, there was a split really within the Socialist Party. Some of them felt like they shouldn't get involved in this case, which had nothing to do with workers' rights. And Dreyfus himself was from a very wealthy family. But a large percentage of mainstream socialists realized the danger to the republic and that this was their battle. And this is one of the reasons, I think, that France then, that anti-Semitism did not become a strong political movement in France at, you know, between this point and then uh, the 1930s, um, unlike Germany. Uh, one of the, what did you call them, Dreyfusards? Yeah. Um, uh, was one of the originators of the, the Zionist movement, which then sort of culminated in the creation of Israel in 1948. Would that be a fair distillation? Yeah. So um, it's important to keep in mind that the early Zionist movement was taking shape in the context of the Dreyfus affair. So like, you know, the first First Zionist congresses were held in the late 1890s at exactly the time that this was playing out. And Theodore Herzl, who's considered the founder of the Zionist movement, covered the Dreyfus affair for one of the, you know, for a leading German language newspaper. He would later claim that his idea for Zionism came watching the dramatic degradation ceremony of Dreyfus in at the end of 1894, where Dreyfus is in the courtyard of the École Militaire in the shadow of the Eiffel Tower in France. They, um, in, in front of 10,000 people, they ripped Dreyfus's insignia off of his uniform and broke his sword. Herzl was covering that. He would later claim that he, as I said, he had the idea for Zionism. That probably was not true, we think now. He actually had the idea slightly earlier. And at the time, like most Jews, he assumed Dreyfus must be guilty, that the army must know have known something that, you know, um, so – but later it became part of the myth of early Zionism that – if Jews weren't safe in France, they wouldn't be safe anywhere without their own country. And some of the other early Zionists like Max Nordau were also obsessed with the case. Um, so um, yeah, so that's a complicated history, but it does go back to this time. In reading up on this, um, I came across the, the coincidence of timing between the publication of the anti-Semitic propaganda, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, that was published in 1903 in Russia, right during the sort of the tail end of this. Is that a coincidence or not? 
No, I mean, this, you know, France was not the only country, uh, of course, to see a rise of anti-Semitism at, the, at this time. The word anti-Semitism was coined in Germany in the 1870s. Um, and certainly in uh, Tsarist Russia, there was, you know, there were brutal pogroms going on in, in the 1880s and, and 90s. Um, and so there was, you know, this was a worldwide phenomenon, the, the rise of anti-Semitism at this time. You know, partly as a reaction to capitalist modernity. People, you know, this was a, a time of enormous change with industrialization and, you know, um, people were, you know, displaced. People were confused by all these, you know, political, social, economic changes. And at times like this, people look for a scapegoat and the Jews were an easy scapegoat at this time. Um, I'm not a historian, so I don't know if this is a silly question or not, but um, in reading up on this, I was struck by the role of the press in moving national and even international sentiment. Is this an early instance of that or were there earlier ones that I'm just unaware of? Well, that that is a great point because one of the things that made the Dreyfus Affair possible was the rise of the mass press. So um, at this time, you see um, uh, all of a sudden an explosion of newspapers. This was really the almost like the, you know, the, the apogee of of, you know, the proliferation of the press at, at this time. So the um, you'd start to have like penny newspapers that are, you know, and there are dozens of newspapers in, in all the different, you know, major European capitals. Um, and this is also the time of like yellow journalism where people um, were, you know, they were, they were hungry for copy. And this story made really good copy on both sides. So, you know, you have... Um, you know, it, it's clear that if it hadn't been for the press, it would not have become an affair in this huge way. So this is what really inflamed popular opinion on both sides. Is the Dreyfus affair still present in the collective consciousness of French citizens today? Yes, I would say uh, for good and bad. So um, in general, it's, um, you know, uh, seen as, you know, a moment uh, where truth and justice triumphed in France, that um, French institutions bent but weren't broken and the the republic came through this, this um, you know, difficult time. But it does remain a subject of controversy. And even in uh, and, and almost as like a kind of dog whistle for the right, I would say, in the last um, presidential election, um, you know, a couple years ago in France or, you know, less, you know, a year and a half ago, um, this right wing, you know, far right candidate named Eric Zemmour, um, who's a real provocateur of Jewish background made, you know, uh, a few, you know, amazing statements saying that the the innocence of Dreyfus is not, uh, we can't take it for granted. You know, he said something like that, which of course, every, you know, everyone has known that it's, you know, he was completely innocent. But that, as I said, functioned as a kind of dog whistle to the, to the right. Um, so this event, it, you know, it still gets kind of trotted out um, in France, um, you know, from time to time. But in general, it's seen, you know, as a kind of, you know, uh, victory for the left and for, you know, the, the um, 
you know, um, the fight against right-wing nationalism and racism. Was the uh, anti-Semitism back during the Dreyfus affair a primarily a politically right-wing phenomenon or was it more dispersed than that? Yeah. So that's a good question. So yes, basically it was the most of the um, anti-Semitism and most of the anti-Dreyfus arts came from the, the right, from the nationalist right in France. Um, I should say also that the Catholic Church did not um, acquit itself well during this time. So they, um, for the most part, threw in their lot with the anti-Dreyfusards, especially the um, the Jesuits um, at the time. And some of the um, the Assumptionist newspaper was also viciously anti-Semitic. Um, but as I said, um, the socialists on the left, um, there was also anti-Semitism, you know, on the left, and they divided. They were not... Um, you know, for the most part, they either wanted to stay out of it, as I said, and then a big part of the socialists did come around and, and support um, the Dreyfusard cause. But yeah, for the most part, this was this is what's you know referred to as the old anti-Semitism now. So this is the the old racist, right-wing, nationalist, xenophobic form of anti-Semitism who felt. You know, they felt that Jews were foreigners in France, um, even families like Dreyfus, whose families had lived in you know, the province of Alsace for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, but they felt like they um, that France, you know, they didn't belong in, you know, the French nation. So you talked about at the beginning how your talk today was going to talk about how it was perceived by other Jews throughout Europe. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that some. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things I discovered, I tried to set out to read as many Jewish newspapers from the time as I could. Um, I read them in French and English, and I had a lot of help from research assistants reading them in German and Hebrew and Yiddish. And um, I discovered that um, Jews around the world were completely obsessed with the case. Um, often these newspapers talked about almost nothing else for years. I mean, this was really, you know, a hot topic. And what I found was even though Jews at the time were really divided politically as they are now, um, so there, were, there was the Zionist movement that was taking shape, the kind of dominant group were the ones I would call integrationists who felt like Jews should, you know, stay in the countries where they were born and become loyal, you know, be loyal citizens of the countries of their birth. And then there were the, there was the burgeoning socialist movement. Um, these parties were diametrically opposed and each of them saw in the Dreyfus affair confirmation of their own ideology. So the Zionists saw said that the Dreyfus affair proved that Jews were um, not safe anywhere in Europe um, and had to have their own homeland. The integrationists said, well, OK, there might be anti-Semitism, but it all worked out in the end. And France came to its senses. And this shows that Jews should stay in, in Europe and in the countries of their, of their birth. And then the socialists, as I said, were really divided. Um, they weren't supposed to take interest in um, Dreyfus just because he was Jewish. There was only supposed to be worker solidarity. But it kind of showed that they were interested in him Anyway, and this led to a kind of, you know, formation of a um, specifically Jewish socialist movement um, around the world, in New York especially. So um, that was – and I think in the end, it really became a moment when Jews 
realized that they had something in common, and this was their kind of history of oppression and the need to fight anti-Semitism in the present. So that's, I think, one of the big lessons of the affair is that despite these political differences that were, you know, very real to Jews, they realized that through the Dreyfus affair, there was something that um, bound them together as Jews. Uh, this is probably a super complicated question, but I'm going to try to get you to answer it anyway. Um, was the anti-Semitism seen in Europe the same thing on some level as the anti-Semitism and hatred seen today in the Middle East? Yeah, that's... Because we're talking about, you know, Germans and French and Europeans, and we're not talking about, you know, people from the Arab world. Right. So that's that's a big question that that um, scholars of anti-Semitism are you know interested in and, and trying to solve. What um, th- what you're referring to is what people call the new anti-Semitism, okay. and it's it's you lar- referred earlier to the old. Yeah, I was wondering old. if that's what you were getting. Yeah. At. So this is the new, and you know, people one kind of shorthand for referring to it is you know anti-Semitism that takes the form of anti-Zionism, um, which is not to say that all criticism of Israel. Israel is anti-Semitic, but there certainly is a kind of criticism of Israel that does cross the line into anti-Semitism. And in a sense, this is new because, you know, Israel didn't exist then. That was about the old kind of anti-Semitism was about creating racially homogenous states in in Europe and, and the United States also. So that was, you know, that this is a different, you know, form, which um, it takes, you know, the form of um, hostility to Jews because of um, the actions of Israel or the perceived actions of Israel. Um, so in that sense, it's different. But what's striking is that a lot of the tropes um, or a lot of the stereotypes are very similar. Um, I could go into, you know, some of those, but that, you know, Jews, um, uh, you know, all kinds of conspiracy theories that Jews control the media, that Jews have too much power. Um, we see we definitely saw those things that, you know, at during the Dreyfus affair, and we see them again now. You know, these complaints about, you know, the Jewish lobby has too much power. The Jews are, you know, controlling the, the media and skewing how we understand Israel. Um, so some of those tropes are, are very similar. The um, murderous rage is very similar, I think, um, you know, between then and now. Um, so, yeah, so there are, you know, uh, quite a lot of parallels. Uh, one last thing, just to circle back to, to Alfred Dreyfus. Um, he then went on to serve in World War I on behalf of France after yeah. all that before he wound up, you know, passing away later, right? Yeah. So he, you know, resigned from the army because, in fact, they weren't very generous to him. When they restored his rank to the army, they didn't, you know, promote him as they should have. Um, And there was, you know, definitely residual anti-Semitism. And the army had a long, you know, it was hard for them to recognize, you know, the mistake they had made. So he resigned from the army, um, but then came out of retirement as a, you know, like late middle-aged man to fight in World War One, alongside his son who fought in almost every horrible battle during World War One. his son Pierre. Uh, his wife and daughter volunteered as nurses back in, in France. 
Um, he then died in the 1930s, but his wife lived on, and um, the family, you know, tragically experienced a lot of persecution. You know, they experienced the Holocaust during uh, World War II. His wife, they all had to go into hiding. His wife hid out in a convent, and his favorite granddaughter, Madeline, who was a resistance fighter, was arrested and deported and killed in Auschwitz. Well, unfortunately, that is all the time we have. I appreciate you bringing some of this historical context to light for us. Um, I enjoy having these kinds of conversations on this show. Uh, Dr. Maury Samuels is director of the Yale Program for the Study of Antisemitism and Betty Jane Anlian, professor of French at Yale University, and he's on the Florida Gulf Coast University campus to give a talk. Dr. Samuels, thanks so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Dr. Samuels was on the Florida Gulf Coast University campus to give a talk titled The Dreyfus Affair, Antisemitism, and Jewish Identity at the Turn of the 20th Century. It was presented by the FGCU Office of the Provost. Our show today was produced by yours truly. Our director today is Jared Gonzalez. Our social media coordinator is Tara Callaghan. For now, thank you for listening. I'm Mike Canary. This is WGCU-FM, Fort Myers 90.1, WMKO Marco Island 91.7 FM, NPR 4. Southwest Florida.